The American Scholar by Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Christopher June. Mr. President and Gentlemen, I greet you on the recommencement of our literary year. Our anniversary is one of hope and, perhaps, not enough of labor. We do not meet for games of strength or skill, for the recitation of histories, tragedies, and odes like the ancient Greeks, for parliaments of love and poesy like the troubadours, nor for the advancement of science like our contemporaries in the British and European capitals. Thus far, our holiday has been simply a friendly sign of the survival of the love of letters and want people too busy to give to letters any more. As such, it is precious as a sign of an indestructible instinct. Perhaps the time has already come when it ought to be, and will be, something else, when the sluggard intellect of this continent will look from under its iron lids and fill the postponed expectation of the world with something better than the exertions of mechanical skill. Our day of dependence, our long apprenticeship to the learning of other lands, draws to a close. The millions that around us are rushing into life cannot always be fed on the sere remains of foreign harvests. Events, actions arise, that must be sung, that will sing themselves. Who can doubt that poetry will revive and lead in a new age, as the star in the constellation harp, which now flames in our zenith, astronomers announce, shall one day be the pole star for a thousand years? In this hope, I accept the topic which not only usage, but the nature of our association seems to prescribe to this day, the American scholar. Year by year we come up hither to read one more chapter of his biography. Let us inquire what light new days and events have thrown on this character and his hopes. It is one of those fables which, out of an unknown antiquity, convey an unlooked-for wisdom that the gods in the beginning divided man into men, that he might be more helpful to himself, just as the hand was divided into fingers, the better to answer its end. The old fable covers a doctrine, ever new and sublime, that there is one man, present to all particular men only partially, or through one faculty, and that you must take the whole society to find the whole man. Man is not a farmer, or a professor, or an engineer, but he is all. Man is priest, and scholar, and statesman, and producer, and soldier. In the divided or social state, these functions are parceled out to individuals, each of whom aims to do his stint of the joint work whilst each other performs his. The fable implies that the individual, to possess himself, must sometimes return from his own labors to embrace all the other labors. But unfortunately, this original unit, this fountain of power, has become so distributed to multitudes, has been so minutely subdivided and peddled out, that it is spilled into drops, and cannot be gathered. The state of society is one in which the members have suffered amputations from the trunk, and strut about so many walking monsters a good finger, a neck, a stomach, an elbow, but never a man. Man is thus metamorphosed into a thing, into many things. The planter, who is man sent out into the field to gather food, is seldom cheered by any idea of the true dignity of his ministry. He sees his bushel and his cart, and nothing beyond. He sinks into the farmer instead of man on the farm. The tradesman scarcely ever gives an ideal worth to his work, but is ridden by the routine of his craft, and the soul is subject to dollars. The priest becomes a form, the attorney a statute book, the mechanic a machine, the sailor a rope of a ship. In this distribution of functions, the scholar is the delegated intellect, and the right state he is man-thinking. In the degenerate state, when the victim of society, he tends to become a mere thinker, or still worse, a parrot of other man's thinking. 
In this view of him, as man thinking, the theory of his office is contained. Him nature solicits with all her placid, all her monetary pictures. Him the past instructs. Him the future invites. Is not, indeed, every man a student, and do not all things exist for the student's behoof? And finally, is not the true scholar the only true master? But the old oracle said, all things have two handles. Beware the wrong one. In life, too often, the scholar errs with mankind and forfeits his privilege. Let us see him in his school, and consider him in reference to the main influences he receives. 1. The first in time, and the first in importance of the influence upon the mind, is that of nature. Every day the sun, and after sunset, night, and her stars. Ever the wind blows, ever the grass grows. Every day men and women conversing, beholding, and beholden. The scholar is he of all men whom this spectacle most engages. He must settle its value in his mind. What is nature to him? There is never a beginning, there is never an end to the inexplicable continuity of this web of God, but always circular power returning into itself. Therein it resembles his own spirit, whose beginning, whose ending he can never find, so entire, so boundless. Far too, as her splendor shines, system on system, shooting like stars, upward, downward, without center, without circumference, in the mass and in the particle, nature hastens to render account of herself to the mind. Classification begins. To the young mind, everything is individual, stands by itself. By and by it finds how to join two things, and see in them one nature, then three, then three thousand. And so, tyrannized over by its own unifying instinct, it goes on tying things together, diminishing anomalies, discovering roots running underground, whereby contrary and remote things cohere, and flower out from one stem. It presently learns that since the dawn of history there has been a constant accumulation and classifying of facts. But what is classification but the perceiving that these objects are not chaotic, and are not foreign, but have a law which is also a law of the human mind? The astronomer discovers that geometry, a pure abstraction of the human mind, is the measure of planetary motion. The chemist finds proportions and intelligible method throughout matter, and science is nothing but the finding of analogy, identity in the most remote parts. The ambitious soul sits down before each refractory fact. One after another reduces all strange constitutions, all new powers to their class and their law, and goes on forever to animate the last fiber of organization, the outskirts of nature, by insight. Thus to him, to this schoolboy under the bending dome of day, is suggested that he and it proceed from one root. One is leaf and one is flower, relations sympathy stirring in every vein. And what is that root? Is not that the soul of his soul, a thought too bold, a dream too wild? Yet when the spiritual light shall have revealed the law of more earthly natures, when he has learned to worship the soul, and to see that the natural philosophy that now is, is only the first gropings of his gigantic hand, he shall look forward to an ever-expanding knowledge as to a becoming creator. He shall see that nature is the opposite of the soul, answering to it part for part. One is seal, the other is print. Its beauty is the beauty of his own mind. Its laws are the laws of his own mind. Nature then becomes to him the measure of his attainments. So much of nature as he is ignorant of, so much of his own mind does he not yet possess. And in fine, the ancient precept, know thyself, and the modern precept, study nature, become at last one maxim. 2. The next great influence into the spirit of the scholar is the mind of the past. In whatever form, whether of literature, of art, of institutions, that mind is inscribed, Books are the best type of the influence of the past, and perhaps we shall get get at the truth. Learn the amount of this influence more conveniently, by considering their value alone. The theory of books is noble. 
The scholar of the first age received into him the world around, brooded thereon, gave it a new arrangement in his mind, and uttered it again. It came into him life. It went from him truth. It came to him short-lived actions. It went from him immortal thoughts. It came to him business. It went from him poetry. It was dead fact. Now it is quick thought. It can stand, and it can go. It now endures. It now flies. It now inspires. Precisely in proportion to the depth of mind from which it is ensued, so high does it soar, so long does it sing. Or, I might say, it depends on how far the process has gone of transmuting life into truth. In proportion to the completeness of the distillation, so will the purity and perishableness of the product be. But none is quite perfect. As no air pump can by any means make a perfect vacuum, so neither can any artist entirely exclude the conventional, the local, the perishable from his book, or write a book of pure thought that shall be as efficient in all respects to remote posterity as to contemporaries, or rather to the second age. Each age, it is found, must write its own books, or rather, each generation for the next succeeding. The book of an older period will not fit this. Yet hence arises a grave mischief. The sacredness which attaches to the act of creation, the act of thought, is transferred to the record. The poet Channing was felt to be a divine man. Henceforth, the chant is also divine. The writer was a just and wise spirit. Henceforth, it is settled. The book is perfect. So love of the hero corrupts into worship of his statue. Instantly, the book becomes noxious. The guide is a tyrant. The sluggish and perverted mind of the multitude, slow to open to the incursions of reason, having once so opened, having once received the book, stands upon it, and makes an outcry, if it is disparaged. Colleges are built on it. Books are written on it by thinkers, not by man thinking. By men of talent, that is, who start wrong, who set out from accepted dogmas, not from their own sight of principles. Meek young men grew up in libraries, believing it their duty to accept the views which Cicero, which Locke, which Bacon have given, forgetful that Cicero, Locke, and Bacon were only young men in libraries when they wrote those books. Hence, instead of man thinking, we have the bookworm. Hence, the book-learned class, who value books as such, not as related to nature and the human constitution, but as making a sort of third estate with the world and the soul. Hence, the resorters of readings, the emendators, the bibliomaniacs of all degrees, Books are the best of things, well used, abused, among the worst. What is the right use? What is the one end which all means go to effect? They are for nothing but to inspire. I had better never see a book than to be warped by its attraction clean out of my orbit and made a satellite instead of a system. The one thing in the world of value is the active soul. This every man is entitled to. This every man contains within himself, although, in almost all men, obstructed and, as yet, unborn. The soul active sees absolute truth and utters truth, or creates. In this action, it is genius. Not the privilege of here and there our favorite, but the sound estate of every man. In its essence, it is progressive. The book, the college, the school of art, the institutions of any kind, stop with some past utterance of genius. This is good, say they. Let us hold by this. They pin me down. They look backwards and not forward. But genius looks forward. The eyes of man are set in his forehead, not in his hindhead. Man hopes genius creates. Whatever talents may be, if the man create not, the pure efflux of the deity is not his. Cinders and smoke there may be, but not yet flame. There are creative manners, there are creative actions and creative words. Manners, actions, words, that is, indicative of no custom or authority, but springing spontaneous to the mind's own sense of good and fair. On the other hand, instead of being its own seer, let it receive from another mind its truth, though it were in torrents of light, Without periods of solitude, inquest, and self-recovery, and a fatal disservice is done. 
Genius is always sufficiently the enemy of genius by over-influence. Literature of every nation bears with me witness. The English dramatic poets have Shakespeareized now for two hundred years. Undoubtedly there is a right way of reading, so it be sternly subordinated. Man thinking must not be subdued by his instruments. Books are for the scholar's idle times. When he can read God directly, the hour is too precious to be wasted in other man's transcripts of the readings. But when the intervals of darkness come, as come they must, when the sun is hid and the stars withdraw their shining, we repair to the lamps which were kindled by their ray to guide our steps in the east again where the dawn is. We hear that we may speak. The Arabian proverb says, A fig tree, looking on a fig tree, becomes fruitful. It is remarkable the character of the pleasure we derive from the best books. They impressed us with the conviction that one nature wrote and the same reads. We read the verses of one of the great English poets, of Chaucer, of Marvel, of Dryden, with the most modern joy, with a pleasure, I mean, that is in great part caused by the abstraction of all time from the verses. There is some awe mixed with the joy of our surprise when this poet, who lived in some past world two or three hundred years ago, says that which lies close to my own soul, that which I also had well nigh thought and said. For if the evidence thence afforded to the philosophical doctrine of the identity of all souls, we should suppose some pre-established harmony, some foresight of souls that were to be, and some preparation of stores for their future wants, like the fact observed in insects, who lay up food before death for the young grub they shall never see. I would not be hurried by any love of system, by any exaggeration of instincts, to underrate the book. We all know that, as the human body can be nourished on any food, though it were boiled grass and the broth of shoes, so the human mind can be fed by any knowledge. And great and heroic men have existed, who have almost no other information than by the printed page. I only would say that it needs a strong head to bear that diet. One must be an inventor to read well. As the proverb says, he that would bring home the wealth of the Indies must carry out the wealth of the Indies. There is then creative reading as well as creative writing. When the mind is braced by labor and invention, the page of whatever book we read becomes luminous with manifold illusion. Every sentence is doubly significant, and the sense of our author is as broad as the world. We then see what is always true, that as the seer's hours of vision is short and rare among heavy days and months, so is its record, perchance, the least part of his volume. The discerning will read, in his Plato or Shakespeare, only the least part, only the authentic utterances of the oracle, all the rest he rejects, were it never so many times Plato's or Shakespeare's. Of course, there is a portion of reading quite indispensable to a wise man. History and exact science he must learn by laborious reading. Colleges, in like manner, have their indispensable office, to teach elements. But they can only highly serve us when they aim not to drill, but to create, when they gather from afar every ray of various genius to their hospitable halls, and, by the concentrated fires, set the hearts of their youth on flame. Thought and knowledge are natures in which apparatus and pretension avail nothing. Gowns and pecuniary foundations though of towns of gold, can never countervail the least sentence or syllable of wit. Forget this, and our American colleges will recede in their public importance, whilst they grow richer every year. 3. There goes in the world a notion that the scholar should be a recluse, a valetudinarian, as unfit for any handwork or public labor as a penknife for an axe. The so-called practical men sneer at speculative men, as if, because they speculate or see, they could do nothing. I have heard it said that the clergy, who are always more universally than any other class of scholars of the day, are addressed as women, that the rough, spontaneous conversation of men they do not hear, but only a mincing and diluted speech. They are often virtually disfranchised, and indeed they are advocates for their celibacy. 
As far as this is true for the studious class, it is not just and wise. Action is with the scholar subordinate, but it is essential. Without it, he is not yet man. Without it, thought can never ripen into truth. Whilst the world hangs before the eye as a cloud of beauty, we cannot even see its beauty. Inaction is cowardice, but there can be no scholar without the heroic mind. The preamble of thought, the transition through which it passes from the unconscious to the conscious, is action. Only so much do I know, as I have lived. Instantly we know whose words are loaded with life and whose not. The world, this shadow of the soul, or other me, lies wide around. Each attractions are the keys which unlock my thoughts and make me acquainted with myself. I run eagerly into this resounding tumult. I grasp the hands of those around me, and take my place in the ring to suffer and to work, taught by an instinct, that so shall the dumb abyss be vocal with speech. I pierce its order, I dissipate its fear, I dispose of it within the circuit of my expanding life. So much only of life as I know by experience, so much of the wilderness have I vanquished and planted, or so far have I extended my being, my dominion. I do not see how any man can afford, for the sake of his nerves and his nap, to spare any action in which he can partake. It is pearls and rubies to his discourse. Drudgery, calamity, exasperation, want are instructors in eloquence and wisdom. The true scholar grudges every opportunity of action passed by as a loss of power. It is the raw materials out of which the intellect molds her splendid products. A strange process, too, this, by which experience is converted into thought, as a mulberry leaf is converted into satin. The manufacturer goes forward at all hours. The action events of our childhood and youth are now matters of calmest observation. They lie like fair pictures in the air, not so with our recent actions, with the business which we now have at hand. On this we are quite unable to speculate. Our affections are yet circulate through it. We no more feel or know it than we feel the feet or the hand or the brain of our body. The new deed is yet a part of life, remains for a time immersed in our unconscious life. In some contemplative hour it detaches itself from the life like a ripe fruit to become a thought of the mind. Instantly it is raised, transfigured. The corruptible has put on incorruption. Henceforth it is an object of beauty, however base its origin and neighborhood. Observe, too, the impossibility of antedating this act. In its grub state, it cannot fly, it cannot shine, it is a dull grub. But suddenly, without observation, the selfsame thing unfurls beautiful wings and is an angel of wisdom. So there is no fact, no event in our private history, which shall not, sooner or later, lose its adhesive inert form and astonish us by soaring from our body into the Empyrean. Cradle and infancy, school and playground, the fear of boys and dogs and furals, the love of little maids and berries, and many another fact that once filled the whole sky are gone already. Friend and relative, profession and party, town and country, nation and world must also soar and sing. Of course, he who has put forth his total strength in fit action has the richest return of wisdom. I will not shut myself out of this globe of action, and transplant an oak into a flower pot, there to hunger and pine, nor trust the revenue of some single faculty, and exhaust one vein of thought, much like the Savoyards, who, getting their livelihood by carving shepherds, shepherdesses, and smoking Dutchmen for all Europe, went out one day to the mountain to find stock, and discovered that they had willed up the last of their pine trees. Authors we have, in numbers, who have written out their vein, and who, moved by commendable prudence, sail for Greece or Palestine, follow the trapper into the prairie, or ramble around Algiers to replenish their merchantable stock. If it were only for a vocabulary, the scholar would be covetous of action. Life is our dictionary. Years are well spent in country labors, in town, in the insight into trades and manufactures, in frank intercourse with many men and women, in science, in art, the one end of mastering and all their facts of language by which to illustrate and embody our perceptions. 
I learn immediately from any speaker how much he has already lived, through the poverty or the splendor of his speech. Life lies behind us as the quarry from whence we get tiles and copestones for the masonry of today. This is the way to learn grammar. Colleges and books only copy the language with the field and the workyard made. But the final value of action, like that of books, and better than books, is that it is a resource. The great principle of undulation in nature, that shows itself in the inspiring and expiring of the breath, in desire and satiety, in the ebb and flow of the sea, in day and night, in heat and cold, and as yet more deeply ingrained in every atom and every fluid, is known to us under the name of polarity. These fits of easy transmission and reflection, as Newton called them, are the laws of nature because they are the laws of the spirit. The mind now thinks, now acts, and each fact reproduces the other. When the artist has exhausted his materials, when his fancy no longer paints, when thoughts are no longer apprehended, and books are a weariness, he has always the resource to live. Character is higher than intellect. Thinking is the function, life the functionary. The stream retreats to its source. A great soul will be strong to live, as well as strong to think. Does he lack organ or medium to impart his truths? He can still fall back on this elemental force of living them. This is a total act. Thinking is a partial act. Let the grandeur of justice shine on his affairs. Let the beauty of affection cheer his lowly roof. Those far from fame, who dwell and act with him, will feel the force of his constitution in the doings and passages of the days better than it can be measured by any public or designed display. Time shall teach him that the scholar loses no hour which the man lives. Herein he unfolds the sacred germ of his instinct, screened from influence. What is lost in seemliness is gained in strength. Not out of those on whom systems of education have exhausted their culture come the helpful giant, destroy the old to build the new, but out of the unhandled savage nature, out of the terrible druids and berserkers, come at last Alfred and Shakespeare. I hear, therefore, with joy, whatever is beginning to be said of the dignity and necessity of labor to every citizen. There is virtue yet in the hoe and the spade, for learned as well as for unlearned hands. Labor is everywhere welcome, always we are invited to work. Only by this limitation observe, that a man shall not for the sake of wider activity sacrifice any opinion at the popular judgment and modes of action.